L'aspinage au la bouchon, cigarette pote bello, si rakish bakaletto, Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in uh, this episode, I'll be continuing to look at some of James Adji's film writing. Uh, we, uh, I started in the last episode looking at uh, an essay he wrote called Comedy's Greatest Era, and then a bunch of his film reviews he wrote for The Nation in 1943 and early 1944 mostly. So we're going to push on with these Nation reviews. It's going to take a few more episodes to, to get through them all. Um, there are a whole lot of them. In fact, he seemed to have increased his pace of writing these. Uh, before he was writing like one a month or once every three weeks. Sometimes uh, he wrote more frequently um, every couple weeks um, or sometimes every week uh, in 1944. So there's a lot of them and he certainly has been seeing a lot of movies. So I don't know if I want to go through movie by movie and, and kind of tell you his opinions on them. A lot of films he just says it's not worth seeing or this is a good movie. Um, but I want to focus on a, on a handful of films he talks about and then try to think a little bit more about his overall view of film and American film and where it was in the, in the mid-1940s. And I'll just mention a, a couple of the things uh, that he seems to come back to quite a lot in these film reviews. One is he's fairly hostile to the kind of the big name actor. Um, I, I mentioned a movie he talked about called Sahara last episode where he, he kind of complains how Humphrey Bogart and all these other soldiers are in this campaign. And, you know, he he makes a joke like the most highly salaried soldier. You know, in reality, the soldiers would have all been paid more or less the same or whatever their grade was. Uh, but and it was a collective effort. Whatever you do in war is, is fairly collective and, and, and communal and one person can't win a battle. Um, and yet he has been paid so much more than all the other actors probably combined. Um, and he really likes like amateur actors. He seems to really have, he re really digs when directors use amateur actors, especially with war films. So for instance, one film he really liked, and, and maybe we'll get to it, is Memphis Bell. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie from like the 1990s about the bomber, the famous bomber, the first bomber to complete, the first U.S. bomber anyways, to complete his 25 uh, sortie tour um, but the movie in the 1944 that came out Memphis Bell was a documentary right and it seemed like there was documentaries but there's also moments that were like acted afterwards and he talked about how it was like hard to distinguish the two um, but the use of just real people I think was something he really really liked um, in in films so that's one thing he appreciated when directors did uh, another thing, I think he just he just wants more more realism in in films as much as possible. And I think that ties to his kind of dislike of the of the aura of the big star. And I think another thing to talk about, and this is a little bit more politically sensitive when you look at the propaganda films of of the wartime era, is how do you present the enemy and how do you present war atrocities and and how do you look at them? There's even a like some of the first newsreel footages of, of Nazi war crimes. He's a bit ambivalent about this. 
not because he doesn't think these war crimes deserve to be discussed and identified and known. It's just he doesn't want the dehumanization that so often accompanies propaganda to to dominate the discourse of the war. Right. It's it's very similar because earlier on he talked about uh, the Disney film Victory Through Air Power, which is like a documentary dramatization and sort of 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 an actual nonfiction book about air power and bombing. And he complained that Disney, in, when making that film, sort of uh, sanitized war, right? You know, you can either just bomb cartoon figures, you can just ignore the bombing effects of civilians of all, or you can be realistic. And he said, like, really the best choice is to be realistic. So, yes, we have to achieve victory through air power, and that's going to be a role. But that, involve, that means we're going to bomb children, and you got to face that. Um, so I think that may be like one of the more interesting aspects of how he talks about films during during wartime. But anyways, those are just some of my overall impressions looking at his his film reviews from this period. So let's take as an example uh, a film he reviewed on March eighteenth, nineteen forty four. Um, it's called "With the Marines at Tarawawa." Um, this is a nineteen minute short. Um, now another thing he really liked was like the newsreels. Right. And in these days, you would go to newsreel theaters to get news or, or I guess it'd be before regular like feature films. You'd see newsreel footage and things. But there were newsreel theaters that specialized in, in news, I guess. He, he mentions them. Um, but here's what he writes. And this kind of combines a lot of the things I was talking about. Um, With Marines at Tarawara gave me at the time a sharper realization of combat than any other film I have seen. I also respected its craftsmanship and its taste, barring an ill-timed utterance of the line, their lives mean nothing to them, while the camera is examining Japanese corpses. It interests me to color, or it interests me that color, so harmless to musical fantasies and so generally fatal to films which deal even nominally with peacetime realism, as a lot to the power and immediacy of these war scenes. A man who was at terroir tells me it's impossible to duplicate the sounds of such an operation, and that with such material, as was photographed, the editors have pulled no punches. As I suspected they might have, the camera simply failed to get down some of the things we read in the newspaper. This eyewitness, he was a correspondent there, thought the picture a good job, but was, I could see a little amused that it had moved and excited me so intensely. End quote. So he wants the realism, even though this is, seems dramatized and scripted, it's based on real soldiers' accounts and things, and he's skeptical about the dehumanization of, of the enemy. So all that sort of comes together in this, this little, little film here. Um, now, generally, he, he seems to have the most fondness for, for some war films and newsreels, as I said. Um, but, you know, like feature-length scripted like fiction... I guess even though the war films are fiction, but you know what I mean, like like dramas and things like that. He he didn't have a lot of he didn't usually say good things about them. Even films that have kind of stood the test of time and are well respected now, he's not always very kind to. Um, but there is an interesting exception here. He thought one of the best films in 1944 was a sequel, of all uh, of all things, The Curse of the Cat People, and it's actually a supernatural. Um, like uh, it's a it's a it's a fantasy. It's a supernatural horror um, film, and I've actually never seen it. But I'm going to try to make a point to do it. Um, it's interesting how we kind of uh, love this movie. 
uh, of all the movies. It kind of stands out because it is is a genre film. I didn't watch too many of those, uh, at least not in the first 200 pages or so of this book that I read. He writes, masquerading as a routine case of grade B horrors, and it does very well at the job. The picture is, in fact, a brave, sensitive, and admirable little psychological melodrama about a lonely six-year-old girl, her inadequate parents, a pair of recluses in the neighboring house, and the child's dead, insane mother who becomes the friend and playmate of her imagination. Since you had probably heard about it other already from other reviewers, and since it is the sort of picture any, anyhow that deserves to give one the pleasure of personal discovery, I'll not, to say, I'll not do more than say that dozens of details are as excellent as the whole intention. Um, so he later on says this is one of the best films of... of of 1944 he did a whole review on that um, now as I talked about in the last episode edgy does seem very modern to us in that he's an amateur doing film reviews and now I think most people get their film reviews from essentially amateurs that's what YouTube does right I, I think if when I know if we want to see the new movie we go on YouTube and search for reviews and and there's a handful of famous ones, and there's a lot of others who review these movies, but they're all amateurs, essentially. Maybe they're film study students or something, or graduates, but they're not working for newspapers. They're not professional journalists um, doing that. Uh, maybe some of us go to newspapers still. I don't know how many do that. Um, you know, I guess we go to Rotten Tomatoes, right? And But even there, the amateurs are kind of filtered in with the other reviewers, so it's hard to differentiate them. Um, and Adji said, I'm an amateur doing these film reviews. And these are just my opinions as an amateur watching these things. And, and it's more like a blog. Actually, this, yeah, this column is more like a blog on his adventures in watching films in, in the 1940s. I think that's a, that's a good way to describe it. And in that way, sometimes he'll talk about five or ten, maybe not ten, but five or six movies in one article. Sometimes he'll talk just about one. Sometimes he'll say, oh, I really love this movie, but I'll have to talk about it. My whole next column will be devoted to that, that film. So it, it has this, this casual bloggy kind of feel to it, and I like that. I dig it um, quite a lot. I think it makes these reviews entertaining. And again, I'm learning a lot from these because most of these movies I haven't seen. Um, um, and, and I'm just, maybe I've heard of them, but it, they're, they're mostly kind of new to me. Um, as for Memphis Bell, he reviews that on April 15th, 1944, um, and this is a documentary film. It was later remade into a, like a drama war film in 1990, um, but, you know, this was a big deal at the time. This was the, the bomber's 25th mission. I guess that's the last sortie, so the, the, the crew could uh, go home, I guess, after that. Um, you realize as you watch it, this is Adji's writing, you realize as you watch it that if the crew survives, they'll be retired from combat service. What this means to the men of the crew, to those whose survival will not mean retirement, and to those who are not flying that day is so unobtrusively clear in the faces of all the men that I could not guess which shots were reenacted and which were straight records. This same vigorous and pitiful sense of the presence, danger, skill, and hope of several human beings so pervades the flying, flak, bombing, and fighting scenes that not even one of the dozens or so superhuman shots allows you to feel that either it or you are there for the view. Um, so I don't know how they get the footage. It's actually probably worth checking out, you know, how they actually got the footage of the actual mission, because it, it, it was combat in that mission, it seems. 
the 90s movie makes a I think it must have been but again I have to check it out um, but then they had to combine it with other footage and other filming because some things just couldn't be filmed right so it was kind of a combination of a documentary with some scripted and and, and like set pieces that were filmed but again he likes the realism he likes getting in the face of amateur actors in this case actual soldiers just doing their job um, all right um, now around the same time, this is in May of 44, he writes, it's essentially a little essay. It's not a straight up film review, but it's actually a titled essay called Death Takes a Powder um, for his column. And he talks about various films, many of them dealing with war and death, but they deal with it obliquely or they sanitize it. So this kind of reminds me again of the Death from Above or Air Power um, film. Because he's sort of saying, or he's saying directly, Hollywood... I mean, this is despite being wartime, right, is, is sanitizing death a bit too much. He writes, whether we like it or not, we are not, we are beyond things like between two worlds. That's a film. However decent and sober their intention. And whether we know it or not, and I believe most soldiers and many civilians know it, we are beyond and above the cruel, fetid, criminal little myths about death, which are the best so far that Hollywood has furnished out of its own immediate day. There is evil as cosmetics on a cadaver. And some of the films he talks about uh, just sanitize death in various ways. For instance, the film A Guy Named Joe uh, is about a fighter pilot who gets killed um, and ends up uh, teaching his, like, an angel, his heavenly boss is what's said here, um, teaching him, teaching his son how to become a, a, an ace as well. And it, it kind of takes... It takes the death in war and makes it a bit of a, a joke or, or a, a plot device for a, a story about, you know, about a, a pilot in heaven. So he's a bit dissatisfied with, again, the lack of realism in, in films, even war films. And so the big issue, I think, for, for him with another issue with realism is this use of actors. Um, he... He just thinks, he, he says, th th these are sometimes good actors and established actors, and they're likable, but they're often out of place in the roles that they're put in. And, and I think the main thing is he doesn't really think it makes sense to put a big-name actor who's known in famous royalty, essentially, American royalty of, of a sort, into a, a, a common person's role. Um, and here he's talking about... Uh, well, the, the film is Dr. Vassal, uh, the story of Dr. Vassal. So um, I'll just read the Wikipedia for this film. Um, the story of Dr. Vassal is a 1944 American World War II film set in the Dutch East Indies, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, starring Gary Cooper, Lorraine Day, Sign Hasso, and Dennis O'Keefe. The film was based on a book of the same name by novelist and screenwriter James Hilton. The book and the film were inspired by the wartime activities of U.S. Navy Dr. Corden M. Vassal, which were referred to by President Roosevelt in a radio broadcast made in April 1942. The appropriate section of this broadcast appears towards the end of the film. Um, so that's all we get here. You don't get like a little plot synopsis. But it's, it's kind of a common man. He's a doctor, but just a, never, you know, just a regular guy doing heroic things uh, during the Japanese invasion of of the Dutch East Indies. Um, and here's what Edgy writes about this issue of using Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper's the problem. Um, I like Gary Cooper, but 
God himself, assisted by all nine muses, could not have made an appropriate film of Dr. Vassal once the piece of casting was settled on. Um, so he gives some suggestions. He says, quote, if you must use an actor in this sort of film where no actors belong, get an inexperienced unknown man who looks right and is right inside and who lacks mythologizing power and train him only so much as he needs to be. Failing that, use an obscure, realistically competent, somewhat nearly appropriate professional like Edward Ellis. Two, if a woman is wounded, her flesh may very possibly be exposed. But for heaven's sake, photograph it in such a way that nobody in your audience can possibly gobble it up or vomit it out as criminally misplaced cheesecake. Three, Dr. Vassal was a countryman and a gentleman. I would assume that his country-bred reflexes might cause him to try his best to avoid juggernauting livestock. End quote. The latter two are, are nitpicks about the film, but the first one is the main point. It's like a f character like Dr. Vassal should be played by an unknown actor, all right? That the aura of the movie star gets in the way of the theme of the film. Now, in contrast, the film he really liked, he, he didn't like Dr. Vassal, but a similar film set, you know, set in the same part of the world that he liked was Attack the Invasion of New Britain. But this is Invasion Newsreel. It's newsreel footage. It's, it's not scripted. It's not drama. It's just newsreel, right? Um, quote, in Attack, there are morning shots, men getting and material ashore in the not quite misty sober light which overwhelmed me with their uh, doubleness of beauty, almost sublimity and almost fragrant immediacy, which made me doubt my right to be aware of the beauty of it all. And these were very intelligently restrained, enhanced by rather quiet sounds of metal and motors, sounds which seemed as if stopped down by the foliage and the quality of the light and air. So he has a, he has a whole essay here. He kind of devotes, he says, I like this film, I'll talk about it later. And it's like a month later, he actually gets to a full-length column just on attack, uh, the invasion of New Britain. Um, and he thinks that's really where great filmmaking should, should go to. Is this, If you're going to talk about war, you should talk about it as realistically as possible. And the best way to do that is through newsreel footage. Now, I think certainly to Adji's credit... Uh, he talks not just about American films or, or English films. He, he does talk about foreign films, and um, he likes them. He's generally praise, he generally praises Soviet films. And I think an interesting thing is how many Soviet films he saw. I think that may have been because of the alliance or for whatever reason, a lot of Soviet war films were being translated and, and you know, performed or... Um, What's, what's the word? Presented in American theaters. Um, so one he talks about in July of 1944 is The People's Avengers. And this is actually, this, the, the, the filming of this movie must be a story in itself because, again, it's, it's kind of newsreel footage, but 18 Soviet cameramen record guerrilla life and warfare. I mean, that's, it's kind of amazing that this was, was possible, knowing about the, what, what it was like as a partisan. Uh, behind German lines, like how this was filmed, how the, how, the, how the films were preserved and saved. It seems like there's a whole story behind it. So um, another film he talked about, this was July 29th, 1944, was uh, David O. Selesnik's Since You Went Away. Um, this was an interesting conversation. He, you know, he, 
one thing he talks about a lot in these film reviews is is how like like um, americentric war coverage and stories of what the war were um and you know he's not he doesn't want to like sanitize what the nazis or japanese are doing certainly he praises for instance the army orientation films which don't do that at all he just doesn't like the dehumanization of them right and i think sometimes that's overt like when you point to the japanese and say oh they don't think their life matters sometimes it's more subtle like in a movie like this um and so sensu went away is a very bougie movie according to uh Adji. he calls it um like an improvement on a lady's home journal story um now he might be a little bit too hard on them i, I think there are having looked at some of these articles from lady homes journal other women's magazines during the war and after the war some of them were engaging very seriously in important issues and questions of like what happens when your husband comes home from war what if he's changed you know how do you introduce him to the kids all these kinds of things were actual issues that these magazines sort of dealt with but i just a little hard on them yeah it doesn't matter his main point though is that this is a very um sentimental and kind of bourgeois look at this question of the family left behind at home and his main problem is like it's a it's a mere centrism of it all he writes since it seems possible that wives and children in england and in russia and china and even conceivably in germany and japan are missing their men and cherishing their homes very much as we are i don't like to see this phenomenon presented as a peculiar glory of one particular country and it's one true cause and justification and aim of war but that, like much of since you went away, is the law of dream life for which, I'm afraid, neither Mr. Selznick nor anyone else can be blamed. And if so broad and deep, in one sense of reality, can, at best, only hope to stay afloat in it. So, kind of a fantasy, I guess, of the, of, 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 this, of, this, of this war experience um, presented through the, the family that's left behind, the home front. That said, though, I think there are interesting questions to ask about this home front experience and the family experience during, during the war. In every war, actually. But um, the scale of it was so different in, in times like the Civil War or World War II. Um, well, what's next? Now, kind of like a propaganda film, but not quite, is, is a film like Wilson. Uh, Wilson... I mean, this is the film I really have to go see if, if I can stomach it. I don't know. Adji doesn't like it. He doesn't really recommend it. Um, but it's about Woodrow Wilson, obviously. And so right, making a film about Wilson during World War II, of course, you, you perhaps have nostalgia, the, the, the nostalgia wave um, being a part of that. But I think more so you have like, especially in 1944 when the, end of war is not in doubt and it's just a matter of time and then the question is how do we make a post-war world right it's not surprising that people would think of wilson and and say well what you know he was one of the first to say can we create a, a world of peace of sustained peace and of course wilson failed at that so wilson's failures become then an inspiration or a lesson for people in 1944 and 45 as they try to imagine a post-war world i think he he kind of thinks the movie was just end up being boring kind of overgeneralized a bit um maybe overly sentimental not really up to the grandeur of the 
of the figure or the or the topic. But I, th I think this is at least what he says here makes it interesting enough to maybe want to to check out. One more film he really, really liked, and, and I think he's going to talk about another one. Yeah, The Best Years of Our Life. Well, I'll talk about it in the next episode. But this is kind of like that movie. You probably, maybe you've seen uh, Best Years of Our Lives. If you haven't, you should. It's a wonderful film. And that one uses real soldiers as, as actors. Um, this one is Hail the Conquering Hero, which is about a Marine who gets back. And, and returns home, right? So this becomes a theme in films. And at the end of the war and after the war is the returning soldier. It's kind of, it's, it is kind of like the domestic film. Um, since you went away, dealing with the same kind of questions, I think. But he really liked this film, Hail the Conquering Hero, which, which maybe he says has sort of a weak story behind it, but it's a skillfully made made picture. But this is just a maybe I want to kind of reserve this conversation about the returning soldiers till we get to um, the post really the post-war period, specifically his comments on um, the best years of our lives. Now, while Edgy was mostly sympathetic with uh soviet films it seems or at least the ones he, he sees he likes or the films about russia uh there's one he doesn't like and 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 this is something i kind of want to dwell on and, and and a little bit and that is how atrocities are dealt with um so november 18 1944 he reviews a film called the rainbow which he calls just a ferocious anthology of the atrocities perpetrated by German soldiers upon the women and children and babies and old men of an occupied Ukrainian village. Um, now he admits, like, I'm not Russian. I didn't endure these things. I don't know. But he asks this question, quote, I wonder whether one has any business making or accepting a film about war or cruelty or brutality unless some sort of attempt is made in the film to understand them. I wonder whether certain dreadful events of this sort of picture is full of are not so incalculably rich in the possibilities of moral and aesthetic blackmail that they can never be represented maturely or even undeceitfully. End quote. This is the same problem he's going to have with the newsreel footage of Nazi war crimes that came out in, you know, in early 1945. Just um, what's what if you don't contextualize this, it just becomes dehumanizing propaganda aimed to dehumanize the enemy. Right. And the timing of it, I think Adji is bothered by as well. He says, like, this is coming at a time when the Russians are going to win the war, when the war's outcome is not in doubt. Right. Quote, it seems possible that with the shift towards certain victory after terrible danger and loss of ferocity and suffering, a general reaction may have set in among the Russian people in thousands of liberated towns, which has tended to make them sick of hatred and vengeance and capable of it. And that this film is to be understood less as a spontaneous outburst of rage and loathing than a carefully deliberated effort to combat war weariness and the restoration of any seeming balance of moral tenderness of skepticism, end quote. So I wonder, is this what he thinks about the Nazi war, foot, Nazi war crime footage that you saw in American newsreel films? That people just want the war to be over, they want to move on with their lives, they're, they're done hating, and so they need to hate. It's like Orwellian, right? Like you need to... 
remind people you have to have the five minute hate every day or whatever five was it the five thirty five second thirty second hate one minute hate whatever it was you got to have that every day you got to remind people how horrible the enemy is and if you if it wears out you change the enemy or you, you have a new story to you know get people riled up right um so he's a he's a bit bothered by the propagandist aspect of this he'd rather have a more humanistic film that actually looked at the reality causes the context the reason of crime of crimes it's not it's not to whitewash it it's just he wants a proper document of it okay so let's let's jump ahead a little bit i'll, I'll talk about a few more things but i want to jump ahead briefly um to may 19 1945 and this is where an edgy reviews the the Nazi, the, the newsreels of Nazi war crimes released by American soldiers, right? Of course, the concentration camps in Germany were liberated by, by the Americans. Of course, the Soviets were liberating Auschwitz and, and other camps in the East. So by the end of 44, 45, just the extent of Nazi war crimes was more and more known, right? And I think that's why you start getting films like this that can emphasize it's maybe the Soviets didn't even know the extent of of the brutalities until they retook the Ukraine, right? And that's why the movie came out then. Um, they didn't have fully have those stories. I, I'm more sympathetic to that, that that film, I guess, although I didn't see it, just from what he read. I think he's being a bit too too hard on this because on some level, I think, you know, rage about these, these crimes might have a place, I guess. We don't always have to... You don't always have to like understand the villain. I guess that's that's my point. It, it, I don't see that's always necessary. We're not. We don't always have to be historians trying to dig out the context of everything, right? And even if we do, we can still focus on how horrific they are, right? Like I read a lot of Holocaust history, and you can do both at the same time too. You can emphasize just how grotesque these crimes are and how horrifying they are while talking about kind of the ideology behind it or the philosophy or the institutional culture that led to it, that's all legitimate, but that doesn't take away from our, our visceral reaction to it, that, that impact. And I think that's an important part of, of our discussion of human rights and, and all that. But, but at the same time, I, I kind of get his point that it, it can become dehumanizing propaganda in the wrong hands. Um, and I don't know, I've seen some of this, this, uh, U.S. footage. I think most of us have at some point seen at least little shots of it. Um, and he says this, I have not felt it necessary to see the films themselves. So I didn't even see them. He's just writing about them. I don't agree with those who feel that this deprives me of the right to have some general, some reactions and ideas of my own in relation to the general matter or that they are necessary for that reason, not worth putting on paper. Quote, briefly then, the passion for vengeance is a terrifyingly strong one, very easily and probably inevitably wrought up by such evidence, even at a distance. But however well aware I am of its strength, and that in its full immediate force and expression, it is in some respects irrelevant to moral inquiry, I doubt that it is ever to be honored or regarded as other than evil, and in every direction, fatally degrading and destructive. End quote. So he thinks, he didn't see these films. I, I mean, and I don't think they do that. I don't think the point of this newsreel footage first making the U.S. public aware of the extent of Nazi war crimes was like, let's slaughter the Germans. I, I don't think that's the answer, the, the response. I mean, I, 
I think they even specifically focus on the on the Nazi crimes, not the German people as a whole. But anyways, that's um. I just think it's it's useful to, to take these two pieces together because he kind of makes the same argument there, and and I don't know how far I want to go with it. Um, but that said, I do think there are times when like human rights gets misused to justify empire and justify vengeance and, and other bad things, right? Like the Iraq war, for instance, could be an example of that. Right? Um, now, in January 20th, he wrote one of these end of the year wrap ups. I mentioned this last time too. how, you know, how YouTubers now all do the end of year wrap ups and their top 10 lists. Adji did the same thing in his column for the nations. This one came a little bit late. In January 20th of 1945 but he talks about the best films and he thinks the best films the two best films are Curse of the Cat People and another called Youth Runs Wild um, both made by Val Luton um, with the Marines at Tarawa one of the first films I talked about in this episode he thought was was great um, double indemnity he praises a few others. So it seems, in his view, 44 was a slightly better year than 43. He seemed pretty down on film in his end-year wrap-up 1943. Um, but he still thinks, like, talent in Hollywood is pretty scarce. And, and there's a lot of banality in Hollywood. So, yeah, I, I guess that does it. I, I think I've talked about a lot of things. Again, there's a lot of movies here that... I'm just, I just sort of skimmed over it and talk about, uh, yeah, like the newsreel footage from the Crimea conference. Um, some of the other meat, like the Iwo Jima stuff, some good stuff here. Um, and I think this book, Adjian Film, or the, if you get the Library of America edition, you get a little bit more than just Adjian Film, is a good kind of guide if, you, if you're interested in 1940s film. Uh, you could just have it. And you read his reviews, watch the movie, and come to your own opinions about it. Um, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun reading them, learning a lot about a lot of new films. So, yeah, I'm just going to to close down this episode for now. I gave you a really long episode last time, so um, so we'll move on to that post-war period in the next episode. So this will cover September 1945 until summer of 1947, I guess. Um, he he did films he did film reviews for the nation until I think till the end of his life um, at least until September forty eight so um, two more episodes on that and we'll, there's a few other like his Time magazine film writings we'll do that too but we'll stick with the nation for the next episode another hundred pages or so uh, covering a couple years of of film history so. Um, with that, I'm going to sign off. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>